it, I was doing well until it came to my attention that there was a smear campaign happening on our sister podcast. Uh, we started a video game podcast, and uh, today we're here to assert our dominance and assure that we are the flagship program of the Twin Geeks, and we're here to discuss actual arts, yeah. not video games. We have uh, happily and uh, graciously provided resources to this uh, upstart podcast of, uh, you know, fellow uh, podcasters, as, as I guess we call them, and uh, they have taken to their platform to smear uh, the name. They are biting the hand that feeds them, and uh, if they don't get back in line, they may have some trouble with productions going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy for us to just cut the cord on this upstart little podcast. I mean, it's a scrappy little thing, and, and I wanted to believe in it, but um, I'm... I'm afraid there's just a rivalry forming and that uh, we may have to take action soon. Yes, so uh, we'll see how that develops. And uh, hopefully they learn their place and uh, pull out an official apology sometime in the near future. Uh, check back on this podcast next week to see how that goes. I suspect that the very next show they will be very apologetic and they'll acquiesce to our demands that... Um, we need to write a written statement where they proclaim that this is the main show, not their own. Um, yes, there's a pecking order around here, and it's important that uh, the other members of the site remember who's the boss. There's a hierarchy for a reason, and it's us. It's not this upstart video game podcast. What are video games? What, who plays video games? Uh, I don't know. anyone. Uh, hey, Kevin, did you get that uh, video camera I sent you in Animal Crossing, by the way? <laughs> yeah uh, thank you very much uh, we've both been playing a lot of yeah. animal crossing but um we know that we are the superior podcast so um we, we don't need to talk about fluff today it, yeah. it doesn't concern us that much speaking of uh fluff uh what are you watching because there's no <laughs> movies happening right now uh speaking of fluff i'm watching a lot of errol morris uh documentaries I started with, uh, what's it called, like Gates to Heaven, where it's about a pet cemetery, but it's really a philosophical film about the people who run it. So, is it kind of like the Stephen King Pet Cemetery, then? <laughs> it feels like it has, like, a founding for it. I know it's uh, one of Roger Ebert's favorite films, and um, reading his old reviews, he always made the point, like, it's not about the cemetery or anything. It's really about philosophy and... Uh, it's about what the people say that's outside it. And the Errol Morris style, uh, I watched three of his this week. Um, it, he always lets people ramble, and they just talk and talk until they reveal something larger than what their actual topic is about, which I always appreciate. That's uh, interesting. Again, uh, I know your love for documentaries definitely covers a big uh, oversight, at least on my part of the podcast here. And so uh, that's, that's very good to always hear. Uh, and... Uh, I always enjoy your discussions of uh, documentaries, especially in that yearly list that you've started making. I I also went back to like his Thin Blue Line, which, uh, you know, decided a, a very big case. Um, and it kind of created like a docu-noir where uh, they would, where a documentary could actually matter about something outside it and influence uh, policy and decisions. Uh, uh, Errol Morris is pretty important and uh, I kind of want to watch all of his and catch up. I think it's a great uh, it's a great time to do that. Everyone should be uh, going down those rabbit holes and catching up on the people that they have a uh, fast interest in for filmmakers. Um, you fall down any rabbit holes last week? Uh, not too many rabbit holes, but uh, I at least have one film that I wanted to to highlight aside from uh, our feature this week. Um, I, I was going through some of the stuff that was leaving the Criterion Channel as I tend to do in the latter half of the month, and uh, I ended up watching this pre-code early musical that was just nuts it was like made by crazy people i thought what is it it's it's called a uh, footlight parade which okay. is a it's a james cagney uh busby berkeley musical uh, made of warner brothers uh and it just it it started out like at an 11 like james cagney just seems like he's on drugs bouncing off the wall and so energetic and the the film is just so fast-paced and it's like difficult to keep points but it's like it's almost like parodic in some of the ideas they have here because the whole premise is that it's uh you know he james cagney is 
organizing these uh, prologues for movie shows. Like now that talkies are coming mm. in, they're the performances that live performances you would do in front of the show before a movie starts aren't as popular but he's trying to, he's going like over ambitious making this huge productions to try and keep it alive and he's just throwing out ideas left and right like i, I think i showed you one clip where it's like i was, was watching it and it's like oh he's literally pitching cats the musical right now it's literally just a scene where he's like oh we're he gonna does. have these cats and they're gonna people are gonna dance around they're gonna wear big furry outfits have tails and everything and they're dancing right and he's just like i'm like oh it's it's literally cats He's literally pitching cats. And I thought that was already insane. And the movie just got crazier by the end. Um, I I don't know if I talked about it on the show. I watched Donkey Skin a couple weeks ago, the Jock Demi movie. Right. Um, I don't know, have I don't you know heard if you about, about the show. Uh, just from what you've told me, if you could expand upon it, that might be nice. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a king and his wife dies, so... He needs to find a beauty that matches hers. And he goes through all the village and collects portraits of all the women, but they all have slight flaws, so he throws them all out. And he hears his daughter singing over the balcony and realizes she's the only match beauty. And so it becomes like an incestuous thing where he wants to marry his daughter. It's very obscure. It's called Donkey King Skin because his donkey shit's gold. Um. <laughs> it does sound like that. I love, I love weird musicals, which this... Uh, which Footlight Parade ended up being as well, just in kind of insane things. And I think now is a great time for the exploration of some deeper cut musicals and stuff. It was it was really the ending of Footlight Parade where I decided this was kind of unprecedentedly insane because the, the climax is three giant musical sequences in a row, all like different and like they, they all start it pretty crazy and then just keep mounting in their insanity. And then you're like, all right, there's no way it can get crazier than this. And then it just keeps getting more insane. And and like it was at the second one where they have this giant Olympic pool sized like, you know, synchronized swimming routine number with like dozens and dozens of girls. And in, in the context of the plot, this is supposed to be taking place in front of a movie theater screen. And and so just like reality is entirely gone by this point in the movie because it's like you know, these these giant, spectacular, huge dance sequences that are entirely inconceivable with what's going on, but it doesn't matter because it's just so over-the-top and ambitious and insane that you just entirely are buying into the, the fantasy of it. I love a movie to have that kind of escalation and insanity. Um, I think it is a good time to explore just, just some weirdness. I think we need some unique, uh, different perspectives right now. We can't just watch catastrophic movies. Yeah. So have you heard about this Quibi service? Uh, no. Oh, I've seen, like, ads and stuff for it, and it looks very confounding uh, and unappealing. But maybe it you has, can explain to me what it is. Well, it has loads of money, and it comes from, like, you know, like Jeffrey Katzenberg, and it comes from high production value, but it's all seven, six, seven-minute shorts on your iPhone. Um, there's no other platform that you can watch it on. You can't put it on the TV or anything. So, uh Every show has two viewing methods, which I find kind of interesting. You could either watch vertical or horizontal, but um, watching vertical just focuses in on what the show wants. And then horizontal, you feel like the show is like missing information. Like, I mean, it's like blown up and you, you see everything else, but it's like they shoot vertically on purpose. And it's really an annoying way to shoot film. Well, it's it sounds like it's someone like finally trying to embrace the the different uh, medium that phones offer now. Though yeah. I don't know if that was ever an advisable thing. Uh, but no. I, I guess keeping it short is is logical uh, because it's the kind of thing you would want to see. It's like it's like high production vines, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> that... kind of. Um, there's the idea where like Disney plus comes out and it has zero new content. Um, I think the interesting thing about Quibi is that, um, they have, uh, it's entirely new content. So they have nothing old, like they, they have a version of punk like that old Ashton Kutcher show, but it has chance the rapper. Um, they have a, they have a court show, but it's just Chrissy Teigen and John legend punking people as well. Um, they're remaking The Fugitive on there. Uh, they're doing a, oh. a bunch of little things that uh, don't make a lot of sense yet. They're remaking The Fugitive in a six-minute format for your phone? <laughs> they are. Okay. Um, that, uh, <laughs> how do you get one, a storyline into there? I don't understand that. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I, 
there are concerns about like Quibi, like it because they're so short, they might not have to pay um, like the all the guilds their requisite money um, uh, because you need like a feature length uh, amount to to you know qualify for the guilds and whatnot. So uh, possibly it's a really bad idea for production, and it's a lot of cutting corners. Is kind of what it feels like. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I guess it sounds like interesting for the novelty's sake, but like, I I'm, I'm of the Lynch camp here, where I don't want to watch anything on my phone. Really, even like short like YouTube videos, I always want to put it on my my big TV. Like, I, yeah. I mean, maybe it seems arbitrary, like because like to some people, I guess the television is like inferior to the the theater screen and stuff because it's so much smaller, but. Like, I gotta draw the line at phone. Phone is just, like, way, way too small for me. And, um, you know, even, like, an iPad. I don't watch stuff on an iPad either. No. I feel like I could see, like, okay, you're, like, in the break room at work. You you could get, like, a whole, you know, couple episodes in. Uh, it makes more sense than watching a movie or something, maybe. But um, after two weeks, the engagement's gone way down, and I think it will probably shudder before very long. Oh. Interesting experiment, anyway. I don't know. Even there, like, like in short-form content, like, I, I don't like a lot of, like, short-form, like, video stuff. Like, usually if I do have YouTube videos I watch from subscription or anything, I wait till I get a whole bulk of them and sit down for, like, an hour and just watch them one right at the other. Uh, if I'm, like, on a break at work, I usually look for an article or something to read or catch up on, you know, some other stuff, memes or whatever going on. I don't like to watch stuff on my breaks, but maybe I'm different. I mean, I was very interested just because of the kind of money they had behind it and all the talent. Um, very obvious that they were able to uh, pay their way into it and that it there's probably something there. I don't know if it's this, though. Um, it might be this, but on a TV screen eventually. Did you? Would you have any ideas for, like, phone-based content? Like, how would you go about it? Oh, God. <laughs> I, you know how much I like... A Groundhog Day story, and I'd like one that were told in seven-minute loops. I would make one that was in increments, so uh, if Katzenberg wants to give me a call, I have a lot of ideas. Yeah, uh, and by a lot, you mean this one, right? But that's, that's the, the thing with Groundhog only idea Day. I have, but well, well, <laughs> I have the a lot genius of, of a Groundhog, the genius of a Groundhog Day idea is that it's an infinite idea that's also singular. Yeah. I mean, it's it's cycling, and I feel like a seven-minute loop would be really sufficient. It would be uh, kind of like Russian Doll, but I'd really cut it down. Yeah, so it's a... I don't know. I, I don't have much idea. It was, it was a loaded question, because I, I don't have any kind of alternative, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, there, there's got to be some way to utilize the vertical format in an interesting way, and I just don't know what it is yet and i don't think this is necessarily it either uh i think it's something new i think we were close with like short form meme videos and such but again it, it entirely depends on you watching on your phone because you cannot watch a vertical film on a horizontal screen it's just it's unbearable yeah and i don't i like i say when you turn it horizontal it's just like there's nothing in the frame. It's just what's in the center, and it's like, so boring to watch. But it is fun to keep flipping it and seeing what they're focused on. I think it should you should just commit to it and just make it vertical only for, yeah. for streaming. Like, like, capitalize on that niche. So you it turn right. it, there's like, a, there's like a Pimp My Ride reality show, and every time I turned it vertical, it cut people out of the frame. So, like, people <laughs> that are in the episode, you might not even get to see them. That's, that's interesting. That that would be an interesting thing to play with too. Like, what if you made a uh, a show that was like different if you watched it vertically or um, horizontally? Oh, oh, I got it. Like, what if you had a a murder mystery and it had like there are different yeah. people in the frame throughout? Like, if you watch it horizontally, there's more suspects or something going on. I don't know. That's that's something to play with. Like, because that's the interesting idea there is that you have more you can do in and outside of the frame. Uh, if your frame is uh, variable, if it's a variable frame throughout, I guess that's like the kind of interesting thing you can that, that you are afforded with the use of both times types of frame, a vertical and a horizontal one. Yeah, I could see there being different uses like that where you're hiding information and you have like the MacGuffin beyond the frame, and it's a different show when you watch it horizontal. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, 
I don't know how exactly you do it, but that's that's no. an idea. So it's, it's a freebie for you, Katzenberg. Um, yeah, I don't know what the prospects of the show are, but uh, it it would be just like YouTube, except they have the production to get names that just aren't going to make their own YouTube channel. You know, um, they have the ideas. They're like, okay, let's redo the Fugitive in seven minute bits. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know if it'll stay like because YouTube's tried that before. What didn't they get like Will Smith to make a YouTube channel for a little while? And that didn't do anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. YouTube's tried their premium several times, and it hasn't quite shaken out. And, like, Facebook has tried their watch. Um, I feel like we're on the verge of something, and this is, like, halfway there. Everyone's trying. Everyone's trying to find the next trend always, of course. And uh, I, I don't think anyone's quite cracked the Netflix mold yet. That's still the number one uh, zeitgeisty uh, format thing. Do you know why they're number one today? Why is that? Because they have Too Hot to Handle, which is a show where uh, singles that are basically all models go, and the whole premise is that uh, they can't fuck. So um, they go on a vacation, and the the hook of the show is that they can't touch each other now. What? What is it? I'm, I'm a little confused still. <laughs> oh, it's a reality show where a bunch oh, of hot oh. singles go to an island and they can't touch each other and they can't have any sexual contact. You, you know, I really wish I could say that this quarantine has made you into this reality show obsessive, but you were already like this before we all got stuck <laughs> indoors, so... It's true. I already wrote a piece about how it's the most reflective genre for our society, uh, right before the quarantine, so I can't like blame the COVID on on this development. Yeah. So you think this one fits in with those other ones that you've been obsessing over as well? On it's, Netflix, it, is, again, nonetheless, they're all Netflix ones, aren't they? I think it does, but as far as these high concept gimmick shows go, <laughs> the problem with this one is that, um, well, there's a shared pool of money, so people don't want to get intimate because they're going to cost the whole group money. So basically one group of singles does get intimate and nobody else does anything like the, the incentive of a dating show where you don't do anything. is kind of like nothing happens. Yeah. This, this show sounds absolutely riveting based on your description here. <laughs> um, it has a, they're given tasks by a Alexa type. Um, she's like a air freshener, uh, a robot that keeps telling him to stop touching each other. She's very sarcastic. It, it's very hard for me to kind of imagine what this show is. I, I have to tell you, it seems very odd. Like, is the do they just like play up the drama of like near sexual tension and almost like being physically intimate? Like, I, I just have such a hard time imagining the the intrigue of that. Um, sometimes, eventually, they get watches, so sometimes they're able to kiss and get intimate and. Uh, if they, uh, the whole premise is that they should form deeper connections with the people around them, so the air freshener rewards them um, if they if they have a deeper understanding of each other and they're not abusing the system, then it will give them like a night in a luxury room. But only measure, one couple how, seems successful. How do you measure deeper connection? It seems so arbitrary. <laughs> it does. It it's like uh, someone's like, well, I don't feel like it's all about sex, and then their watch goes off, and then they start fucking. Oh, well, that just sounds like relationships in general. That just sounds like how you get laid in general. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like playing into a microcosm of what these shows actually are. Um, it, I kind of like the Netflix model because they always have a sarcastic announcer and she's always saying like, um, well, I, well, we're just like a parody of the reality shows now. She'll come out and kind of mock everything that's happening on screen. I feel like that that's a good reflection of our times because it feels like everything is a parody of itself right now. That's just the world. Yeah, it's like true. Sat um, satire doesn't exist anymore. It's dead. I really prefer uh, something like The Circle, which was earlier this year, and they're putting on international versions of it. They already have season two and three coming. Um, I I feel like I'm into like a documentary and reality binge this year. Uh, do you feel like you know the difference between reality documentary? Uh, reality and documentaries, yeah, I, I think I do. There's, uh, oh, but it's kind of hard to tell when something like uh, Tiger King straddles the uh, both of them there, right? I guess, so I guess my significant difference is reality TV, you're getting paid. Documentary, you can't pay the subjects. So I think that's really the only thing. 
Yeah, I suppose, but I don't know if there's any artistic intention behind reality TV shows. Can you name me one that, that you feel like really matches any kind of documentary format in terms of the uh, insight and, and artistic desire gained from it? <laughs> like I said, I thought Circle actually had something. It was some kind of nice TV that was saying something about how he stayed inside and how we could contact each other on deeper levels, but everything else... Do, I, do you think that... I, I don't do you think that was anything. intentional? No, I don't think it was completely <laughs> intended, but I think it was See, a consequence. That, that's that's the big thing. I think there's a difference here is that you know the the documentarians are like have an intention and a you know they're mining something very specific. They chose their subjects carefully because of what they saw and what they would see reflected. Whereas reality shows are very capitalistically driven. They're just sure, there for your entertainment. Yeah, I feel like the documentary. Well, the main difference is they can't even pay them. They they more have to represent something how it is. And uh, reality shows are more designed around TV arcs and, you know, like individual dramas. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't like I can't quite tell you if Tiger King is more reality or documentary, though. Oh, yeah, that's the, that's the one that I, I thought of there, because there, it kind of has the, uh, like, exploitative and, like, trashier uh, aspects of the uh, reality kind of show that you think yeah. about. Uh, but, it, obviously, people are getting a lot out of it, and the, the people who aren't, like, latching on to the, the zeitgeisty, you know, uh, glorifying aspects of it, you know, they're, they're seeing what the uh, filmmakers intended to showcase, you know, through them and the, you know, the systematic animal abuse and the uh you know horrific you know trashy characters you know and they're not admiring them like that's the i think the intention of the filmmakers there which is lost in how the society has really just ran away with it like it is a reality show yeah it is very problematic if it is a documentary because it is for entertainment um it's not for educating us on anything Mm -hmm. it, do you feel like that is the intent of the filmmakers there that it is more like glorifying and entertainment driven I, yeah I I think they I think they might have had something worth reporting on and documenting, but um, I think by the end they're you know they're really playing into uh, what the mm -hmm. people are, and I don't think it's horrible. I just think it's a, a lot of really bad people, and it plays into their worst habits. Yeah, and, and so that's the really the line you have to draw there is the how much entertainment they're playing towards versus the the documenting and you know the critical lensing aspect of it, which. Uh, you know, it seems from my understanding, based on whoever all here has seen it, you know, is, is it's not entirely the fault of the audience misinterpreting it. It's definitely that the filmmakers allowed it to be taken that way to some degree. And on the other hand, I'm just really thankful for Netflix for teaching me all about love this year. Um, they've taught me that love is blind, that um, in this circle you can... You can trust people even if they're not who they say they are. And uh, you're a lot deeper than how you look. And uh, by not touching and engaging in contact, you could form a deeper connection. You know, and, and that last part, that's definitely a little bit more relevant right now because none of us can really touch each other. Uh, as much sure. as I want to be touching you right now, Calvin, I'm un <laughs> unable to. It's um, very thoughtful, and uh, I'm glad Netflix is reflecting the reality. It's very funny that they had three shows where it's effectively about not seeing someone and uh, then finding out who they really are by uh, getting a little bit closer to them. Just just know, Calvin, that I feel particularly closer to you because I don't have the ability to touch you right now. <laughs> it's true. I feel the same way. Um <laughs> I don't know what's next. I don't know where these streaming services are going, but I feel like maybe shows, like formalized shows, might be on the way out. I I think Netflix is seeing... They, they have their top ten now, and it's almost all reality shows and documentaries. So I don't know why anyone makes anything else anymore. I, I think what it is, is because this is what I've, I've found with people who keep asking about stuff to watch on Netflix, because people ask me that fairly often. Um, and they all want, like shows they want like continuous entertainment which is a byproduct of the conditioning of television for the last you yeah. know 50 some odd years or whatever it like like nobody wants me to recommend them a movie from netflix they're like no i want something that i can watch continuously and just doesn't end effectively yeah and so i think, I think that's where to, the appeal is i think you just want to be able to put netflix on especially during quarantine have something that's unending and open-ended and um 
I, there's a lot of engagement there. You could come back to that every night of the week, and you'll have your show. You you won't run out or have to think about anything. Yeah, people just want to consume. That's that's I think really what they want and what Netflix appeals to, and so that's why that format yeah. works so well for them, and why you see more uh, lo- lo- longer running shows and stuff than you do like movies that Netflix made, and probably why those have been more successful as well. I think we've, we talked about before is that their their track record with feature films is not great at all despite no. <laughs> uh the prestige they garnered last year um yeah they've had some spikes when they overdeveloped in money but i think most of their successful platform is just based on human psychology i feel like they put millions of dollars into studying this and they know what will get people to click and so they have these shows designed around it and i think these reality shows are kind of representing what their findings were mm-hmm I, th- I think we're that much closer to an Al My Balls uh, television program from Idiocracy, right? <laughs> yeah, we're that close. Um, maybe that would be a good Quibi segment. <laughs> uh, so, only one new movie to highlight this week. We have True History of the Kelly Gang. I I think there's more out there. It's just it's a lot harder to find or like see. Like the the, the coverage of what's new and what's available is not great at the moment, of course, because everything is yeah. coronavirus centered. But um, yes. I recommend <laughs> looking at your local independent theaters and just seeing what's on there. But uh, as far as like press coverage, this is all I got this week. Right. Well, that's that's the kind of the tough aspect of it. But you know, we're doing our part still to keep it in the discussion. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about true history of the Kelly Gang? Uh, yeah, it's about a bush ranger in um, Australia, the famed one, uh, Ned Kelly. Uh, there have been film adaptations before, but this is kind of punk rock in the way that it literally has rock and roll, and it has um, half his life as a kid, and then the second half of his life as George McKay, who you've heard me go on about as wanting him as Bond recently, I believe. Um, I really like George McKay and everything. I feel like he really sinks into his parts, and you just feel like he's a crucial part of the story anytime he's on screen. Uh, it becomes a good Western in the Australian sense that we typically have those. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a lot of those those kind of uh, pseudo westerns because recently you also had a uh, baccaro, right? Oh yeah, I kind of seek these things out, but uh, yeah, I that's like, that's true as well. <laughs> I feel like they're also magnetic to me. Like I have to follow these things and find out what they're doing. Um, there is well, it comes from the guy who made uh, Macbeth uh, 2015, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Uh, uh, what's his name? Justin Curzo. Yeah, uh, the one with. Uh, I'm What's blanking his on his name. Fassbender? Yeah. Fassbender, yeah, Michael Fassbender. Fassbender. There we go. Yeah. Uh, he So he did Assassin's Creed and um, the right. Macbeth <laughs> 2015. And um, this feels pretty in line with that in that he's taking more artistic liberties with an old legend. Uh, it's it's pretty good. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think there's a did- lot in it, and it's rough around the edges. It's oh. fun. Um it's very homosexual, and I don't know if that's all in the old stories, but it, it puts a lot in there. I gotta, I gotta stop you for a second, Kyle, because you just kind of equated Assassin's Creed to being an old legend, like the Kelly Gang or Macbeth, which I feel is very strange to do. <laughs> do you know about Assassin's Creed? It's about going and exploring old legends and creating new right, style right. on it. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't that. It was, it was making you sound like Assassin's Creed was like a, a tale as old as time passed down from, like, you know, generations before and stuff. Like, as old as Macbeth or something, which seemed like craziness to say. It's not your father's Ubisoft. Do you like the Assassin's Creed? Have you played any of this? Uh, I have not played uh, Assassin's Creed, as you know... Uh, as we stated earlier here, video games are the lesser art form, so yeah. I abandoned that a long time ago. I just wanted to point for... out that they're probably all garbage because they're video games. <laughs> Maybe they'll be covered on our sister podcast. I'm sure they'd consider covering some trash like that. <laughs> Alright, all right, uh, enough video game uh, trash talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know where this director comes from. I don't know why he has such a good cast, but uh, he has some pretty good names here. Um, yeah, George McKay does a good job. Uh, uh, surprisingly, uh, Russell Crowe shows up as the Bush Ranger who kind of takes him in when he's a young kid and develops him. Oh, interesting. Does it, uh, I don't remember if you... We, we have a review on the site for this one? We will this coming week, I, I guess. Uh, yeah, we should this week. 
Okay, so uh, keep your eye out for that for a little bit more details. Uh, and it's a recommendation from you, yes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not not too strong, but uh, I think right now it's the best thing you could watch this week. So I, I do recommend it. It's great. Well, uh, we talked a lot about Netflix earlier, uh, which also happens to be the subject of uh, the film we watched this week. Of course, we're covering a streaming title you can watch uh, during your quarantine each week and this time we're, we're looking at Netflix, and we covered one from the previous decade, a uh, defining film from the previous decade, some would say, yes? Oh, yeah. Um, I'd say The Social Network is kind of what started, like, 2010 and started the conversation around what we're going to show this decade. It gave us, like, a new means to explore technology and film, and it, it felt really cutting edge for the time. And it has been widely praised and made lots of best of the decade lists of course and it has been on my radar but in the back of my mind for a long long time and i watched it for the first time last night and at the end of the film i was very mad at you calvin for making me watch such a goddamn great movie it's and nobody telling me <laughs> yeah it, it really is and i mean people have been saying that for a long time of course and i was like all right all right get to it and i'm like i'm not the biggest fan of david fincher like everyone loves zodiac yeah. as well and i'm very indifferent to it and several other of his films i think he's a good filmmaker still but like he's not he's not the cream of my coffee or anything and uh but this this was very remarkable and it was it was that is that frustrating kind of remarkable which is like fuck you for making me think such a good movie <laughs> god it's damn aggressively you. <laughs> good to the yeah. point where it annoyed you it it did it did it, it like at the end I'm just like ah I didn't want to watch so many great movies this month because I have right. you know I think I've talked about it before I said I have this uh this calendar that I print every year that represents my favorite film that I saw for the first time this month and I already had a bunch of good ones to pick from here I mentioned Footlight Parade which I saw like just like the other day and I'm like oh yeah that's it this movie was so nuts so then I turn around and I watch this next day I'm like God. Damn it! I've got to pick between two amazing movies now to claim as you know the the best or favorite of the month or whatever, and I'm like, ah, why, why do I have to be burdened with such glory? Uh, so, do you feel like this made your calendar for the month? It it probably did. It's it's going to be tough. Like, and we'll see how it it sticks in my mind because all of the decisions are made at the end of the year eventually, and it's it's a really tough oh, race yeah. for this month. Unlike other ones. And that's the thing as well that kind of sucks. I'm like, oh, well, well, why couldn't I have watched this in, like, March when I had a shitty movie I had to pick? Because <laughs> I didn't watch anything good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this one's hard to beat because it comes together so cohesively. Every part feels like it's holistic and it attributes uh, to a uh, vision. Uh, I feel like it actually has an identity and it really supplements yeah. the subject. It feels like it's really born from Facebook and technology. Yeah, uh, I feel like it's a an old kind of story uh, in the sense that it's a it's a kind of capitalistic you know rise to glory, step out on the toes of everyone along the way, and find nothing but you know sadness at the top or whatever. But it's done in a modern sense for a, a modern uh, idea. This idea of the social media you know form of uh, capitalism and the you know the uh, power that comes with uh, the. Uh, top of the internet and such that uh, Facebook obviously risen to and it's great in the fact that it is such a uh, condemning portrait of Mark Zuckerberg in a time when he's still very successful and active that's like not something you really typically do and so I'm surprised it did not get as much like blowback from him because it's, it's not <laughs> a good portrait of him he does, he does not come off as a good person in the movie at all even if it is and that was, I think, another big conclusion I drew at the end of it. Was like watching, I'm like, I don't really watching this. I don't care so much about what's true and what what isn't because I watched it very much in the idea that it's a it's a larger than life story and it is more of a parable, not not exactly reflective of reality in any sense. It's it's much more uh, it's much bigger than you would equate to it. Like watching, I'm like, I don't necessarily feel like I'm watching a an accurate representation going in just automatically. I feel like it's probably not accurate, and that's really the only blowback that he had, but it it's like it came so early and fast, and, and it got the dark side of Facebook right away before that was uh, public conception, um, you know, this is like pre-even like Farmville, like before it was just, it was just college campuses and uh, kids in college kind of exchanging information, and 
playing off like the Facebook of those websites and uh, you know what they mined from to create it. Uh, there really wasn't like this. Facebook is an evil enterprise and stealing all our information that there is now. So I feel like it. We eventually got there, and I think it's better than it was when it came out. Uh, I think that was probably always there. It's just definitely more in the the shadows, and now it's such an overt and understood. Uh, consensus that Facebook is an evil entity and Mark Zuckerberg is a crazy billionaire alien person with no emotions. But uh, yeah, the movie the movie captures that extremely well. Jesse Eisenberg is uh, really fantastic. I don't know if he's given a better performance and a more no. conscious performance at that too. Like it's it's very clear that he's honed in on his character. I feel like it kind of keys into something that's kind of there with it. I think I got to it last week when we discussed Eisenberg's. I don't know why we didn't pair that with this, but uh, I discussed two <laughs> Eisenberg movies last week, uh, and I feel like he's kind of a little bit of an asshole in that he comes off that way in interviews, and this kind of pairs well with, I think, what his real personality is. I think he's always given like yeah. the you know kind of uh, ruffled puppy dog that's a little bit too anxious, and I think this is a lot closer to who he probably is. Yeah, but maybe not quite as uh, outright villainous. Uh, I don't. I don't want to equate necessarily Eisenberg with the absolute kind of you know uh, monster that they almost portray Zuckerberg as here. And it's it's very uh, clear just from the opening scene, which was wonderfully done, amazingly written, uh, very well edited, paced scene that establishes his character so well and how much of a asshole he is and very very literal maybe that's like one of the only issues with the film is that it's it's very literal in what it wants to tell you yeah i think it is uh clear and it has a clear design that's i mean it comes from a book right i mean it's still an adaptation in some sense but uh, it's very rare that we ever get an adaptation while someone's alive and uh not even i wouldn't even say at the prime of their career yet they're they're still pretty early in it the whole story isn't there but this feels like a complete story yeah, we're waiting on Social Network 2 to yeah. come out to fill in the rest of the blanks. But the other thing that makes it kind of, like, literal is just that it's the it's the script. It's very, like, you don't uh, need me to tell you that this is an Aaron Sorkin script because it is so bluntly that, but in the best way that we love Aaron Sorkin for. Yeah, I was thinking about... Um... I've been thinking a lot about Sorkin. I've always been a fan of his writing, and I don't care that it doesn't read like it's realistic i want movies to sound like movies like a, i like those old fast talking movies where everyone talks with a rigid point and everything's bon mots and everything sounds better than it really would um and i think sorkin really taps into a language here that is like a, a eastern college intellectual I, I i totally agree with you on that that's what i want out of movies obviously because those you know uh early talky fast talking quippy you know super sharp dialogue scripts and film noirs and stuff that's exactly my mo that's the kind of thing i love and and sorkin definitely has a lot of that influence as well and like i said going in you're aware that the film is fantastical and not a reflection of reality exactly but that's what i want out of movies i don't i don't like like a, a direct translation of real life as much i want to be kind of whisked away and i think there's a there's a really brilliant moment where you see that there's the uh the, the, the insult that Zuckerberg fires back in one of the dispositions like halfway through the film or so where he like mm. he answers the, the condescending question as he calls it in this like <laughs> yeah. absolutely devastating like response that just like tears this guy apart and you're like that no nobody no matter how like smart like would off the cuff be able to you know respond like that but it doesn't matter because it does exactly what it should emotionally for the scene like and you get that feeling of it and it's, it's just a complete devastating like 180 they're turning it around on the, the lawyer i mean i think as far as like hearings go in a film i think it pretty much nails what i want it's very quick and concise and he's like um i, I just want a little credit from the board right he gives these little um he gives these little speeches that are so counterintuitive to what what people would do in that situation but he's such an asshole and so rigidly in his own alien world that uh I think it really benefits from the Sorkin script. Yeah, certainly. And again, the the, the dialogue comes off really uh, fantastically there. He's a despicable character, but you're you're envious of how successfully despicable he is. That he's like it's that it's that kind of arrogance that you want that you that you want to just be able to throw shit back in people's faces <laughs> and not give a damn about consequence. Like it's that's that enviable dickishness that none of us can hope to achieve. 
I think it's such a small thing to just, I mean, costume design doesn't have to be elaborate. I like that he wears flip-flops and I like that he wears his sweaters, like his Gap sweaters to court. Like, it doesn't really matter to him. I mean, it's, everything is a statement. If I believe right, that's like the one thing that the real Mark Zuckerberg said the film got, you know, surprisingly right, was that, was his clothes. Like, they were all very (laughs) accurate to what he wore in college. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are false truths here, but I think it also makes an entertaining movie. And I don't feel like Facebook is some thing that we have to go and protect. I don't think we should care about corporations that much. So um, I feel like abuse them all you want. Uh, One more thing on Aaron Sorkin. He had uh, Molly's Game, which kind of bombed at the box office. I don't even know if you got around to that. Uh, No, I didn't. I did know about it. Uh, It was his his uh, first directorial effort. Yeah, yeah, he debuted with the he debuted with the Molly's Game as a director, and it really bombed in the box office. But it came to Netflix April first, and it's been just exploding. Um, it's been on their popular list. It's been uh, in the news a lot. So uh, I'm really glad that's finding a platform, and people are seeing that he is also a very capable director himself. Yeah, we'll see if that sticks. But it's it's very hard to deny that David Fincher's directorial style here is just. Uh, phenomenal and so well suited for the the material. Uh, particularly, I like the very grungy lens which through everything looked like the whole uh, you know atmosphere and the uh, the look of the college campus and everything it was very dirty, very gross, and it I thought it very well reflected the the corrupted nature of uh, the the creation of Facebook and all that. I think it plays so well into the Atticus Rosen, uh, Trent Reznor score too. Like the industrial oh, yes. music kind of <laughs> reflects that griminess of the of the lensing. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fantastic score. I think I miss a little bit of it in the second half. It's not as uh, prevalent there as it is in the beginning, but uh, it's in the beginning. It's it's some really fantastic stuff, and uh, I love the the electronic aspect of it. It's it's very well punctuated. Yeah, I feel like it comes together. It really shocked me this time because I I think a lot about social network and I think a lot of it, but um, I I never really considered it score a masterpiece. But I think at least in the first half, it really is. Yeah, uh, it's it's really fantastic at moments. Trying to remember a specific moment. It's I think it's during like the montage where they're assembling face mash and you're seeing go through all that. That's where it really helps. That that's a really great montage that shows the growth of that in a very uh, expedited manner. It's very post-industrial, but it also has like a lot of techno babble in the score. Like it feels like you're interconnecting with like computer networks, and you're you're with them in the room, and it really elevates all that stuff. Was this uh was this his first score? I think this was his first film score, wasn't it? Was it? Or uh, I'm looking that up now because I don't want to make crazy accusations. Uh, but I know like he's done everything since then, right? Let's see. I know he's done like a lot with Fincher as well. Composer. I'll cut some of this space. Um. E- no, nope. These are all. I just scrolled all the way to his top here. Yes. Uh. So this was his first film score. Really. That's yep. really impressive. And then it was a number of Fincher things before he just like went all in and started doing everything. That's incredible because uh, he's so natural at it, and I think his. And this was uh, okay. Uh, this also won the Oscar, of course, that year for his score. So yeah. just right off the bat, he's showing exemplary talent. I think he was just immediately heralded as like an auteur of movies, and I think he did good stuff with Fincher through uh, all of his, especially uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think that's maybe their peak together musically. You think better than this? I haven't seen it so. I think it's fantastic musically. I I don't remember a lot as a movie, but I, I, I do remember the music of that. Well, that that was the other thing, I guess, going into this discussion is like, ah, uh, I, I went in like maybe a little hesitant, just like the tiniest bit, because I'm like, I don't want to end up becoming like a, a Fincher fanboy because it has something of a bad connotation uh, in ways, but it's not like praise upon him is undeserving clearly because this film is uh, phenomenal and so well done and the directorial style is so clean and you know concise uh but you know definitely there's uh 
I'm not always the biggest fan of Fincher. I guess I'll come... I mentioned earlier here. Did I mention right just now that I don't like Zodiac that much? I'm going to say it yeah. again anyway. I don't like Zodiac that and... much. But I also don't like the game. I think the game is dumb. <laughs> I feel like you're predisposed to hate Mank, so I feel like there will be another oh, throw yeah. in the pile. Oh, oh, that's what I was going to say. I'm like, why is he even making this? Because kind of going back to the idea of the, the climb to the top and find that. Like, this, I feel like, is a modern... Uh, version of the same Citizen Kane kind of story. That's what I felt yeah. like having watched the film. I'm like, Zuckerberg is a is a spin on Kane as a character. I feel like it is just a revision of that movie in some way, and I think it's a really great one and very modern. Right, but it's not derivative. It's not no. like, you know, just aping off of it. Like, I can't point to a specific thing and say that's obviously a clear Kane influence. It has the same spirit of the same kind of story that's been told time and time again it's not you know but but kane is just obviously the immediate and clearest reference point for that kind of story it's not epigonic as our friends would say <laughs> well and, and the other thing it made me really think about kane in particular is that it has this insanely uh like kind of complex and jumping narrative structure which is really really great in some scenes because it bounces between the past in which things are happening and developing and then the two dispositions that are going on and the uh informing of that so it's told like you know the conversations particularly are so well strung together by bouncing between the three moments in the dialogue itself and just constantly going back and forth in a very clean and clear manner that that was really amazing i think to watch unfold i thought those scenes were the best directed best done in the whole film I came in kind of wanting to like it less, even though I think I saw it like three months ago. I, I was like, could I lower this to a nine or something? I, mm -hmm. I have the same thing with Fincher where I don't want to be there, but his films convinced me to be uh, where I start the film and there's that conversation in the in the bar and it has such a great sense of place and a great social tension there and everything is about how we interact and... Um, just the way it goes from that and then sets the whole context for the for Harvard, I mean, it, it's really expansive and it, it holds a lot. I guess one of the other issues you could take with the film, potentially, is that it does kind of push this idea in both the beginning and the book uh, bookend of the, the climax or the end of the film there, that, like, Mark Zuckerberg was entirely fueled by like being scorned by a girl and that's his entire yeah. motivation and they even emphasize that with like justin timberlake's character at one point where he says right. he started napster for like the same reason and and that might be a bit of a disingenuous twist on it but it does make the story more dramatically interesting and it, and it leads to a good bookmark at the end like i feel like when he's constantly he's refreshing the page waiting for the friend request uh it's not it's not indicative of that he he cares all that much it's just like in this moment like he's thinking back to where this all kind of began and everything and like it's still uh demonstrating the emptiness that he has inside of him despite everything well, he's done to make himself so greatly successful and surrounded himself by people who will support and uh you know admire him he's still a lonely and entirely isolated person it really shows us what facebook's about and how we use it too i mean there's a whole user context there that's like a desperation to Facebook that, that he's felt and that he's built it for this desperation. And it's led to this moment where we have like a Beatles song that we might think of differently playing over this. And he just keeps refreshing the page and it's such a different ending because it's a modern way to say, you know, to end with ambivalence, which is something that's so rare in American movies anyway. And uh, just the ambivalence of it really, I think is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I guess, in contrast to something like Kane, where Kane is about getting to know the person and the uh, motivation behind it, behind him, and, uh, you know, his kind of uh, rise and success and everything, the social network is much more about the, uh, the, the struggle for power, and power itself more than the human behind it, you know, because Mark is displayed as this very kind of, like, soulless and, uh, you know... Un unsympathetic uh, character who's just like stepping on all the toes on his way to the top. It's about the people he's hurt along the way more than it is about him, especially Eduardo's character, Andrew Garfield, who's who does a great, great job in the film, I think. I think it gets such colorful characters out of it, too. I think uh, Andrew Garfield's really fun, and uh, Rooney Mara is exceptional. She yes. is so fun as uh, Albright, Erica Albright on there. Yeah, smaller part, like, she's only really yeah. there for, like, the beginning. And then one but really great cutting. scene, she's got that great scene at the dinner table where Mark tries to approach her to talk, and she's just, like, giving him nothing. 
<laughs> I, I think she's just so cutting in it. And uh, what little time she gets used is really well. I, I don't even have a problem with like Timberlake in the movie. I feel like no, he does I, good stuff. He does exactly what he's supposed to be, which is he is supposed to be very kind of over the top and cartoony example of uh, Silicon Valley, you know, uh, you know, success uh, um, entrepreneur, as he calls himself. <laughs> um, I really like how it casts the uh, Vinkovas. How do you say Vinkovas twins? It's Army Hammer yeah. and uh, what's the other guys? Uh, they're just yeah. such good, colorful characters that feel like they're right out of that area, and they I don't know they feel like. Uh, rowers that have a bad attitude. It, it works for me. The, the other thing as well with them is that it would be very easy for that subplot of the film to become distracting from the main narrative, but they, it's tied in with it in a very uh, eloquent way that keeps, uh, again, because the film is so much more focused on the damage and the uh, aftermath of, you know, uh, corporate greed uh, of, you know, climbing your way to the top, it's, they're an integral part of the film in seeing the, uh, um, collateral damage caused along the way and the the hurt they caused because they are they are just like entirely this unsuccessful you know uh, form of what they want to be like their ambitions were far greater than their uh, actualities even though they yeah. are still greatly successful they're two Olympians and and there's that's still not enough for them yeah I mean they're Olympians and then they get sixth place, but they also get like sixth place in the tech race, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, this guy takes the idea and runs with it and ends up paying them a shitload of money. Right. I think, I think it's, it's undisclosed, right? It was an undisclosed amount. I, I think their amount is disclosed, but uh, the one to, um, what's his name, to Ed, Eduardo? What's yeah. His name? Uh, that, that amount isn't disclosed, but I think the amount was more than this whole movie cost to make. It wouldn't surprise me because, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And it's not like Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have stuff to throw, yeah, money to throw away, like tissue paper. <laughs> and I don't, I know you have a troubled relationship with Facebook, but it I am so hooked into it now. Uh, everything, I'm in recovery, all of that relies on it. I'm, I'm in a lot of things that I really need Facebook for every day. It's it's a shame then that it's not a better service for you, and it is such an invasive and manipulated uh, process. And obviously, you're aware of that. But it's it's one of those uh, unfortunate necessities that we have that you know the internet has just created that we have to uh, use these singular programs, these monopolized you know services. It's like the same thing. Like I could complain about YouTube and how YouTube is very predatory sure. of its creators. But there's no other option. That's that's how you get the content <laughs> out. There's no competitor. It's true. Like, the user experience on Facebook is just so fucking good that nobody else has come up with a program that's even close. I mean, Twitter is, like, a far relative, but uh, it's, it's n- also yeah, it's not a even the same thing. user experience. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody's I mean, trying to, I think, as well. And it would be so difficult for them to. It would be incredibly stupid to try. So I don't know why anyone would. But but I will say I have been happier since I've stepped off of Facebook. However long ago that was now, uh, um, you know, I it just it means you have to take extra effort to stay connected with the people who mean something in your life. Especially now, uh, you know, you need to really take the time to reach out. If I weren't a parent and weren't in recovery, I'd probably delete mine. But uh, it's just such easy access for my family, and I mean, yeah. they created this world where your whole family's in their ecosystem, and it works. It's scary uh, and, how well it works. And the part where they go over that in the film, where they establish how that's this important thing and what people want, uh, you know, from a social networking site, is is ingenious in the way that they they obviously they crack the code of that and you can see still yeah. how it is reflected and and how it endures despite the blatant and open corruption of, of facebook they're at the speech by bill gates and she leans over and like a add me on the facebook and they realize they made it because it's used as like a verb that she's going to go do tonight on the facebook it's <laughs> funny i will i will say uh so do you have any glaring problems with the film at all I feel like it uses a little bit too much time with the Winklevoss... I can never say their names. Winklevoss twins, and I don't think they're as well-developed as I think you might. Uh, I don't have a problem with it. That's the thing, is that it's just... I generally don't have a lot of problems with it. The one thing, like, the the rowing scene where we see them do the race yeah. and they play in, in the Hall of the Mountain King is... <laughs> I thought it was a very odd musical choice there. I didn't know what I was supposed to take from that. I'm like, okay. But again, it's one of the things where it's over fast enough and, like... 
it's still a semi-important thing to establish that it's like you got to kind of give it a pass and move on. But there is at least one like majorly like disruptive thing that I found in the film that I did not like. Is it the name the social network you want to take no. the the? <laughs> no, it's not that. It's like and it's and it's so obvious and predominant in the scenes where it exists. It's the fake ass Titanic breath that you see CGI'd onto characters. <laughs> no. It's so bad. It's so bad it's, and distracting. It's real fake. <laughs> like oh, why yeah, I can see that. Why does the weather even matter? Like it's it's not one of the things where the fact that Andrew Garfield is cold while he's having a conversation with Jesse Eisenberg. Like, does that matter to the context of the scene that much that you have to show the breath? Like, uh, you know, I, I remember a similar story. There's a story from, funny enough, uh, like Kane, uh, where in the snow where he's playing, uh, and you know the they come to take him away from his mother's, and nobody in the scene has breath. Nobody in the scene has the cold breath, despite the fact they're out in the snow. And that bothered him so much that in his next film, Magnificent Ambersons, they they shot the scene in the snow where they're getting the car going, everything in a freezer in an ice box, so they would have authentic <laughs> snow. And like I'm like, that's great, but but I would rather one of those two as opposed to fake CGI breath. Like I don't care if I don't see it. You can tell me a character is cold and he's shaking his arms and everything, and I don't need to see the breath. It's not that important. <laughs> I don't know why they had to... I don't know why they did that outside. They didn't need to. I mean, uh, they can have it outside again. I, I, don't, I don't care if you want to do that. I don't, want to, I don't care if you want to say it's cold. But you can have breath? it. You, yeah, you can have it snowing and not have you a breath. It doesn't have, have to be exactly accurate to real life because nobody's going to think about that thing. It's the same idea where, like, you ever notice how thunder and lightning happen in the same time in movies and that is not at all a reflection of real life? Nobody cares because it just makes sense when you're watching the film to see those things go together and you don't need the breath to know that it's cold outside yeah i i don't think it really matters at all and 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 it's one of those things where like this is such an insignificant and stupid thing to fixate on that it's not going to affect my my feeling of the film necessarily overall but i am going to obsess about it still because that's the kind of shit that bugs me like uh, and other stuff that that's definitely more personal to me is like I don't like seeing unnecessary text on the screen. So like in the beginning when they're yeah. establishing the date and the time and everything, I'm like I don't need that. Just give me it through the context of the film itself. You're going to be establishing dates and when shit is happening through the dispositions and stuff. You don't need to tell me in white text on the screen at the beginning of the film that it's 2003 at Harvard. You know I know that I know it's Harvard. I can see the damn building. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff doesn't bother me. I also don't have any real significant issues with the movie. I should say. right. That uh, that is it's... that is stuff that bugs me on a on a stupid and insignificant level, and as a personal thing. And I I just like to take you know our opportunity on the platform to complain about stupid shit because I don't have other things to complain about in the movie. I spent a lot of time already praising the things I liked. Now's the time where I get a shit on it a little bit. Um, I I don't know. I it's a movie about Facebook that sucks. Yeah, but it's a it's a great portrait of why Facebook sucks, which I think is exactly. uh, is not something you usually get in a biopic. Very even more rarely when that person is still alive and predominantly powerful. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's surprising that such a thing is. again compared to Kane, which is sort of a biopic in some ways. It takes some inspiration from Hearst, from William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper mogul, and that basically ended Wells's career in many ways. That was the, you know what the, I really the hate tipping point. I severely hate movies that come out and they use a company name, but it's like a fake name that's supposed to represent the company. So I like that when it's a true story that we get Napster, we get all the right information. They didn't take any artistic liberties by creating like a fraud, uh, not like, like Napster company. Nipster. Like, you. I don't Nipster. Want <laughs> yeah. Napster. I can't handle that stuff. So I feel like this also led a charge to actually name social networks in movies. People started saying Facebook and Twitter in the actual movies. There was Did like they say Twitter? Five Did years Twitter come up? I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember if Twitter came up on this. I feel negligent. I don't think it did. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like there were like five years before this where they had like alternative versions and they didn't know if these social networks would, you know, still be relevant in 10 years. So. I like this completely, like, booking on the chance that this will always be relevant, and this is a story right. that should be told. Well, because that's the thing. The focus of the story is not the foundation of Facebook. If, if yeah. it was, then the film would become outdated 
very quickly. Not right now, but like obviously very soon after when Facebook eventually inevitably dies off. Because it is this focus of like this the character study and the rise to the power and the uh, manipulation of things going on and stuff. The it's not about Facebook. It's about the the ideology of the mogul and such and the the uh, character study aspect of it there. It could be it, if you did if you wanted to call it, you know, something else uh, and about a fake company or whatever, it would still work. But it is just so much stronger because it is a ref- reflection of the real life, uh, you know, manipulations and uh, um, abilities of, of capitalism to take over. That it is so successful and, and it really uh, mirrors that. Like I said, it's a it's a great modern telling of this same story. I really love about the movie how lonely it is and how lonely it represents technology as it doesn't really take any chances to glorify the subject where uh, something's really actually disconnecting people and taking them away. Yep, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg comes off at all well here. No. But also, I don't think he really cares that much. Like, the, the end of the <laughs> film... Either. The end of the film indicates that he's a very sad and lonely and empty person. But he probably doesn't give a shit at all. He's probably very happy with the amount of money he has. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't know. I watched that video. What was it like last year, or the year before, where he's just smoking meats in his backyard? He seems happy. Yeah, I, and that's the I guess the interesting thing is that the film does take I think extra efforts to paint him like less humanely, less like he he never has any fun in the film. He doesn't seem like no. he's enjoying anything. <laughs> And that seems very conscious to do, but and it, and I think it strengthens the character of the film. But again, it is an omission that like, yeah, completely betrays the real life person that that kind of exists there. Uh, well, and uh, it's like the character in the film says, "It's like you're not an asshole, but you try so hard to be." Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I'll emphasize that I don't think the film is an accurate, you know, uh, reflection of the real Facebook Foundation story, but it it captures the spirit of that uh, kind of uh, carnivorous rise, you know, that uh, certainly took place and makes it a much more compelling uh, narrative overall. I think it's an interesting time right now, especially in an election year, because Facebook was so negligent last time. Uh, They're at least taking different procedures now to start marking fake news and you have to like click to reveal things that have been flagged even if they're like images that you pull off the internet um yeah so they, uh, they are going through a lot of links to clear up information but uh it's, they're a it's very hard. important subject it's hard to say how much of that effort that they're taking is uh voluntary uh i think is the big thing there to wonder because they were more than happy to profit off of the spread of misinformation all before now and probably still through now but it's uh, it's still good to see that progress being made, and and hopefully, legislation can be put in to to stop that. Because of course, the spread of misinformation and manipulation of the media is a long withstanding problem that is only getting worse. Yeah, um, I mean, I talked to someone that was at Facebook around that time. They just said that they felt helpless, and they didn't. They realized that every day they were affecting the politics in a very negative way. That they were told they can't stop anything and. Uh, you know, they have to stay the course for advertisers. So well, there's a lot of problems that were happening, and I hope this election cycle uh, kind of reverses some of those. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, don't have too much to weigh in politically right now, but... Um, no, there's nothing going on politically <laughs> right now. So. No, nah, nothing at all uh, that's happening. It's a very calm time for politics, actually. Yeah. Um, nothing's... <laughs> what's even... I, it's never been more calm out there. Mm-hmm. But yes, this was a fantastic film. Thanks for making me finally watch it, Calvin. Uh, angry as I am that you make me watch great shit. I'm so glad that you that you got to it and that you really enjoyed I, it as well. Well, you never know. That's the thing is that you never know. And it's always, I think, a risk when we go in watching a film that one of us hasn't seen before. Because there's a uh, though we share a lot of tastes, there's also a lot of places where we diverge significantly. And you, you never know how it's going to come out necessarily. And even if like you were extremely enthusiastic about this and I was kind of middling but overall positive I don't think it would be nearly as interesting as where we're both on the same level these are always the better discussions where we're both uh enamored by the the film we're discussing we try to support groupthink but um it's very rare for me that to see you 
even a film from the last 10 years that you're first yep. watch, you give it the perfect score. So yeah, I don't that's, know, it's fun to see occasionally. That's the kind of remarkable thing because I am, uh, n- not just, uh, uh, unconsciously averse to watching newer things, but, uh, actively avoiding them and uh, just going for more, uh, you know, indulging in my expertise that I'm already uh, fostering. So when something from the last 20 years does really resonate with me, I find it very surprising and uh, um, interesting, you know, that, that and trying to figure out what works so well for me here. And I think a lot of it had to do with the combination of the, the great writing from Sorkin and the, the direction that really uh, carried it through and made it entertaining and enthralling uh, all the way up to the end. Cool, man. Well, let's talk about some really old shit next week. Yeah, and we'll go back to old shit after this. (laughs) All right, sounds good. Thanks so much, man.